Hello and welcome to uh, another edition of Next Gen Waterfronts. This is uh, Dan Martin, today uh, Market Feasibility Advisors. Today I have with me a special guest, uh, Paul Paul Leibovitz, who is the Superintendent of Indiana Dunes National Park. Uh, up until about a year ago, it was Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore, and now it is the National Park. Uh, Paul, for our listeners who aren't from the area, could you describe where where the park is located? Certainly, Dan. Good to be here. Indiana Dunes National Park is about 15 miles of the southern coast of Lake Michigan in northwest Indiana. The park is about 15,000 acres and uh, includes some great beaches, some great uh, coastal dunes, and some great uh, forested uplands that um, preserve a lot of interesting plant life and animal life um, right around the corner from Chicago. Yeah, it's actually it's actually right along um, Interstate, I guess, 94 and parts of Interstate 90 that are the two most traveled uh, northern roads across the U.S. Uh, because everything from Michigan has to duck under the bottom of Lake Michigan to get into Chicago or to the rest of the Midwest. Um, so it, it really has a very high traffic volume. I think it's in excess of 100,000 cars a day on the, on Interstate 94, at least, and 90 is probably another 30, 40,000. Um, I, I think one of the other interesting things, if I'm not mistaken, is isn't it a really uh, a really diverse ecological zone as well? Yes, uh, Indiana Dunes National Park is one of the most ecologically diverse national park in the entire national park system. Uh, for example, we have um, documented here over 1,400 different species of plants alone. So it, it's interesting in this relatively urbanized and industrialized part of the world that we have this fabulous natural place nestled in the midst of it. Yeah, that That is kind of remarkable. And I can tell you, I have enjoyed many trips there and, uh, and uh, I've can't say I've seen all 1,400 of them, but I've seen quite a few of them. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, for decades, it's been the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. And last year, it was renamed Indiana Dunes National Park, making it one of what would now be 61 national parks. Now, I think there are three or 400 National Park Service properties, but only 61 of them now are national parks. Um, what has this meant for for the for the property? So yeah, the, the name change occurred on uh, February fifteenth of two thousand nineteen. The park was established in November of nineteen sixty six. So about fifty three years into the park's existence, the name change occurred. Uh, there are four hundred nineteen units of the national park system, and as you mentioned, uh, sixty one of them are called national parks and. Uh, practically, the name change doesn't mean much, but perceptually, there's a lot of people who would like to visit all the national parks, and what they mean is those 61 that are called national parks, not the 419 that are parts of that system. And you you know the names of those places vary. There's probably over 25 names, National Lakeshores, National Monuments, National Military Parks, National Seashores. Uh, national recreation areas, national rivers. I mean, I don't know how long the show is, but we uh, we are very confusing to the public at large with our nomenclature. But it's it's generally understood or perceived that the the title national park is um, is considered a little bit better than a national lakeshore. It, it didn't automatically come with an increase in budget, did it? 
No. Uh, in fact, the only thing that changed was the name, literally. Um, but uh, honestly, the our visitation since the name change has really grown in a measurable way. And we believe that that's because there's a lot of people who have that bucket list to visit the national parks and they're coming to get their national park passport stamp. And, and actually, you're, you're really, um, you know, as you said, 15 miles long of Lakeshore uh, or roughly and Interstate 94 is is mirroring all of that. So there are lots of places for people to get off 94 and come visit it. So you have a number of access points. So for people who are traveling uh, along busy interstates, you actually have a, a pretty easy time getting to your park. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazingly easy to get here. Uh, Interstate 80, 90, 94 are literally just a, between a mile and a couple miles from the lake edge. And... Um, what I, I think a lot of people, those those tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of daily travelers, a lot of them have no idea of what is literally just three minutes away. Yeah, they, they and, and actually it, it could be very easy for a lot of people just to uh, get off at an exit and go take a look at perhaps for some their first national, I'm sorry, their first national park maybe, but definitely one of their first na- first Great Lakes. Um, you know, Lake Erie doesn't get the visitation that Michigan does or Erie. No, it's this is a, you know, I talk about it in terms of it's one of the most accessible national parks in the country because it's close to where a lot of people live. And uh, this is the kind of park where you can decide, I think I'm going to go and have my lunch today at the national park. And that's something that most people can't do for a place like Yellowstone. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to go to Yosemite for lunch. Now, does does the name change give hope to the other national seashores and lakeshores? Um, you know, for the record, that list includes Cape Cod National Seashore, Cape Hatteras National Seashore, other national seashores uh, like Gulf Islands, Point Reyes, Assateague, Padre Island, uh, Canaveral, uh, Cape Lookout, Fire Island. Uh, in national lakeshores, they're also on uh, Lake Michigan as Sleeping Bear Dunes. Yeah, Apostle Islands and Pictured Rocks, I believe, are both on Superior. Correct. 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 But does, do any of these others, do you think, um, want to go down your path as well and switch from being a seashore or lakeshore and become a national park? So, I, honestly, uh, the internal discussions, we, we always talk about, some of us, that all 419 places should be national parks to just eliminate the confusion as to what the name means or doesn't mean. Um, the, the reality of the name change is, is that it has very little to do with the quality of a resource. It has everything to do with the political process that is required to change the name. So I think all those places you named would benefit from a name change to national park, but the, the reason it does or doesn't happen is really just based on the political expediency and, and um, political power, if you will, of the of the member who would present that change. Yeah, and 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 I would say too that if I were at fifty eight national parks and suddenly it changed to four hundred and nineteen, I would not be happy. If I if I had only three to go. Uh, to get all to collect the whole set. Well, so yeah, I, I would argue that uh, it would give you another fifty years of exciting vacation travel to plan, and you'd be excited about it. I, I, I'll, I'll take that. That, that's a, that's a good response. Um, the now uh, going back to the location of uh, 
Uh, well, actually, I wanted to say, too, to the listeners of this podcast, too, that I listed those other national lakeshores and seashores because it's kind of surprising sometimes to discover how much um, how much frontage uh, in coastal areas um, the National Park Service actually uh, has. Uh, it has some beautiful areas and some remarkable areas, and those are just the national parks. There are national monuments and other uh, national parks or properties that are on our Atlantic, our Gulf, our Great Lakes, or our Pacific Coast as well. Um, if, 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 Paul, you look at the location or think about the location, it's long and narrow. Um, your park is. It doesn't have a single entrance. It has many access points. Um, this isn't your typical national park with a, you know, controlled entry and a handful of entry points. How would you describe it? It, it must be a very different management cha- challenge than, you know, one of the other national parks. Well, yeah. So when you, when you use the phrase typical national park, it's, it's somewhat a contradictory statement because every one of those 419 places is a unique part of America's nature and culture. So the, the configuration of a park, as far as um, points of entry, I mean, we're a non-fee park. There's no entry fee to get to Indiana Dunes national park. And so the upside of all those different places that come in and out is I don't have to spend any time or money collecting fees to, to let people in. This is a very easy park to get in and out of. Um, the, the downside is, is I don't have that revenue from the f- entry fee to then apply to our management needs. So is it a half full or half empty glass um, having all these different places to get in and out? And that, for me, it's a, it's a benefit. It's an opportunity. It's an advantage because we, no matter where you live, there's a way to get to Indiana Dunes National Park that's closer to your house than than not. Yeah, that, that sort of permeability, um, I know, plays for a lot of people because they can get to it easily. And the fact that there's no charge for getting to it easily um, is also a plus. And you also have Indiana State Park or Indiana Dunes State Park. I believe it's surrounded by the National Park, is it? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting story where, and, and it's not unique to here, where Indiana Dunes State Park is actually within the boundaries and part of Indiana Dunes National Park, but it's obviously owned and operated, managed by the state of Indiana Department of Natural Resources, and they're a great partner here, but it's a, uh, it's a separate management entity that is, you know, our boundary overlays their state park. Now, to get into the state park portion, though, you do have to pay, as I recall. Right. There is a separate entrance fee to the Indiana Dunes State Park. And uh, the Indiana DNR has a different uh, management model for the state park system where their their gate revenues help run the state park system. Whereas the National Park Service, the gate revenues, you know, help run the system, but we don't rely on uh, fee revenue to run the national park system. We get an appropriation from Congress. It's, It's like public transit. I mean, there is some hope for fare box recovery for people that take, uh, you know, various city metros. But in reality, that, that seldom gets above 30% of what it costs to operate. Uh, it's a public good. It's uh, it's for the public. Now, and so we talk about the national park system as, you know, we're the, the Indiana Dunes is the number one tourist destination in Indiana. And so we, we conservatively claim 
the responsibility and cause of about a half a billion dollars of economic activity in the region per year because the tourism industry in the three lakefront counties in Indiana is well over a billion dollars annually. So we're, you know, we're part of the business fabric of the region in addition to, uh, you know, a fabulous um, natural and cultural place. But uh, we are part of the, the economic story here. Actually, to go to go to that, you know, why do people go to Indiana, Dunes National Park or the state park, but principally the national park? They're going to see or be on or near Lake Michigan. What is, what is? I, I know 15 miles is hard to describe in a few sentences, but how would you describe the 15 miles of water frontage on Lake Michigan and, you know, what the land is like right next to it? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's a uh, it's a study in contrasts, and it's also an exercise into how you tilt your view. You can take in views of, you know, beautiful high sand dunes and natural-looking beaches and coastline, and move your head a couple degrees, and you'll see some of the largest steel industry in North America, or the skyline of the city of Chicago to the to the northwest. And so, you know, the, the, the mix of really beautiful natural scenery mixed up with some unbelievable heavy industry and, and a big city skyline is really kind of cool. It, it also has a kind of a history, too, because the uh, original development plans for the Lake Michigan shoreline of Indiana uh, were to make that shoreline um, uh, completely industrial from uh, from Michigan from the Michigan border to the Illinois border, and it was I believe only through the intervention. And you might know the date or time, but I think it was in the early 1900s. I'm not sure of that. Uh, it was it, it was at some point there were some people who uh, who rallied to save the dunes because they saw them being torn down for industrial purposes and saw the, the value of, uh, of the natural systems that you touched on earlier. Uh, it's a really interesting story, and it's actually documented fairly well on, a, on a, a PBS show called Shifting Sands. It's a couple years old, so if folks get a chance to watch that, they should check it out. But back in 1916, when the National Park System was established, the first director of the system was a, a Chicago businessman named Stephen Mather, and he talked about Indiana Sand Dunes National Park is one of the first parks in the system. But if you think about what was going on in 1916, it was in the midst of World War I. And the state of Indiana at that time decided to allow the lakefront to be industrialized to feed that war effort. Concurrent with that, though, there was a group of local folks who wanted to do to conserve some of that unspoiled coastline. And they spent the next 50 years advocating for some set aside of a, a larger chunk of the lakefront for conservation purposes. Now, the state of Indiana did set aside Indiana Dune State Park in the 20s, but it, uh, there was a larger demand for a bigger chunk of that, what is a small coastline. You know, m- most people don't think of Indiana as being a coastal state, right? And uh, in, in the uh, 60s, the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore was established as part of a deal with the federal government to establish the Port of Indiana. And so in 1966, both the port and the National Lakeshore were authorized. And then we've been coexisting and doing our things 
together and separately ever since. So I didn't realize that it's it's it was only in 1966 that it's that it was begun. Yeah, it was a 50 year struggle with the conservation community to set aside more of the uh, lakefront. And some of those folks are still around from the 60s who, um, you know, worked fairly tirelessly. And the irony of it was the National Park was created by a piece of legislation that was initiated by an Illinois senator, Paul Douglas. And you just don't see that anymore where a, a, a member of Congress from one state creates a unit of the national park system in another state. Yeah, and, and I imagine that is politically really uh, consequential and challenging these days. But what, but what what I think a lot of people might not recognize who don't know the geography, uh, the social geography of the area, is that what is metropolitan Chicago really spills over into uh, Northwest Indiana. There are about, uh, about 750,000 of the more than six or nine million people in Metro Chicago uh, live in Indiana. And a lot of work in Illinois and a lot of us Illinois people end up uh, going and visiting uh, Indiana now because of uh, the Senator and, uh, and all of those who worked with him for so many years. Um, it, 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 is, it, it, is, it is an interesting thing. You know, you, you know many years ago, people talked about uh, severing New York City off from New York State and making it its own state because that was largely led by the upstaters who didn't want to have much to do with um, uh, with uh, with New York City. I think there are times when uh, Northwest Indiana sort of waffles between whether it feels that it's closer to Indianapolis or Chicago. Uh, that's exactly right, and it's you know it's pretty typical in a in a large, fairly large state with a lot of an agricultural base, but they do have a big metro. And the metro tends to be the tail wagging the dog. And Chicago certainly is a very different place than most of rural agricultural Illinois. And yet the politics and policies of the state of Illinois are driven a lot by what happens in Chicago. Yeah, I, I imagine if uh, if we ended up getting northwest Indiana, southern Illinois would petition to ally, ally with, uh, with southern Indiana, uh, feeling that they were all much more alike. But the, the other interesting twist of it, too, is that that sort of difference between rural and um, part of metro area, urban, suburban, uh, you can really see that in one of your counties, LaPorte County, where Michigan City is, is linked by two different train systems. Uh, Michigan City is at the uh, eastern end of the national park. Um, it uh, is in Indiana, despite its name, and it is linked to Chicago by two different uh, train systems, one a commuter and the other Amtrak. Uh, but if you go to the southern half of Laporte County, it it could well be you know 100 miles south in rural Indiana. Uh, that old money is split in two like that. No, I, I I did a program for a farm bureau group in a little town called Union Mills in Laporte County, and a woman was talking to me afterwards. Said she she had always wanted to see Lake Michigan, and I I sort of chuckled. And I said, well, you know, it's only 20 minutes away. And there was really a, a noticeable identity that people in that part of Southern Laporte County did not were not connected at all to Lake Michigan, and it was literally a short drive away. Well, you know that's that's actually surprising in a lot of ways. My uh, my late mother in law in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, or lived there for many years. Originally from Youngstown, Ohio, but uh, but Connie. Um, uh, I think in, in all of her years here in Chicago in the suburbs, 
I'm not sure she went downtown, but more than once or twice. Um, you know, you, 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 people, we assume, move all of the time everywhere we go because we go a lot of places. Um, but there are, there's a shocking amount of our population that just does not travel for economic or social reasons. Well, so here's my version of that story. I grew up in Philadelphia in the, the northeast part of the city, and I had never been to Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell, a national park site, Independence National Historic Park. Uh, I lived nine miles away, and I never went there until I was 28 years old and was working for the National Park Service. That's that's amazing, and and actually probably not something you would have met, uh, you would have mentioned at your uh, job interview. Luckily, I've been 31 years in the Park Service, and I've probably visited close to 200 units of the National Park System, and many of them have been in the course of work, and I love it. But I did not grow up in a family that had a visiting National Parks tradition. And uh, it's, you know, when I look back and think about I was literally nine miles away from the basically where the where our nation was created through the where the drafting of the Constitution occurred. And when I worked there and I would go down there on my lunch hour and I would watch people from all over the world come there and literally they would cry because of the power of the place. I realized that I was, I had cheated myself out of a, you know, that was my hometown and I was really proud of it. That's, that's a great story. And and it it, it is, it is interesting too, because one thing you said that was particularly notable was that line about uh, you did not grow up in a family that visited uh, national parks or such. And, and, you know, in, in my work for zoos and my work for museums um, for even theme parks, uh, water parks, if you don't go to something as a child, you're just not as likely to take your children there should you have children. And, and, and that, that, I guess, would put a real um, imperative on the national parks, although right now I understand the national park visitorship is, uh, is, is bursting at the seams, at least for the top parks. Um, that, would put, that would put a sort of a, an onus on you guys to try to get more kids there. So you know, I, I agree that there's a couple of programs that are going on to address that. One, you know, the, you're right. The number, the visitation numbers have been going up fairly steadily, but the profile of who those visitors are has not really changed that much. And so we have a, a challenge in the National Park Service to to remain relevant to how America is starting to look. And so. Indiana Dunes National Park, we don't have that problem because we're nestled in a, a, a metropolitan area with a diverse population. But, you know, you go to Yellowstone and the visitation is fairly homogenous. It's it's fairly uh, well-to-do, well-educated white people. And um, it's it's interesting because, again, here we, we are connected really well with the city of Chicago and Gary, Michigan City, and we get – we get all kind of people here, and it's really wonderful. We we struggle with the the larger issue because we don't have it here. But what I hope is is that if we can turn a Gary kid onto the national parks because of a visit at Indiana Dunes, maybe someday that kid will grow up and either themselves or with their family go to a place like Yellowstone or Cape Cod or Grand Teton or Grand Canyon. And I completely get that because I'm an inner city kid and I did not have that connection until I was an adult. And luckily, my wife 
was well-traveled in the national parks as a kid. And so that's how our kids grew up. Well, that is that, that, that uh, child in Gary you cited is a young um, Paul Abovitz. So it's a, you know, you know, oh, you're, absolutely. You know catching and, and catching those kids today uh, really is an opportunity that you more than most other national parks have. That was actually my next question. It was going to be, I've, I've been to many national parks and, um, and last summer, uh, I was struck by uh, when I was at Grand Canyon, um, I guess it was last spring, uh, how international it was uh, that, uh, that the visitation at Grand Canyon, maybe because it's like, a, you know, one of the top 15, 20 things to see in the world. Uh, maybe I am putting an American perspective on that. Maybe it's only top 100. But, uh, but let's say it's one of the, the top things to visit. You know, I would guess that a third of the people there at Grand Canyon were international visitors and the right, the rest of them, the balance, were, as you described, you know, fairly well off white people. Um, although there were a surprising number of, of, uh, of Hispanics and African-Americans and I'm not, I, I, and they weren't identifiably a part of a group. How would you characterize your visitation then at, at, at Indiana Dunes? And, and also, I think in context, if you total your visitation and that of the state park, uh, you would be like the seventh uh, or eighth most popular national park, uh, you know, right behind Yellowstone. Um, I gave you a handful of questions. Sorry about that. Go ahead. No. Uh, so, yeah, our combined visitation here with the state park and the national park is well over three and a half million people a year, which puts us up in the top 10 of most visited national parks the uh, the the complexity of who those visitors are really does match the region. Uh, most of our visitors are from the region, but we get so we get we had we've had visitors here. I think the statistic I just heard about our visitor center uh, this summer was we had people from forty nine of the fifty states, and um, maybe fifteen to a to two dozen foreign countries come through, and so. Um, Again, the visitation is up, and it's, uh, it, it is fairly reflective of the region we live in, but we do get substantial visitation from all over the country and the rest of the world here. Do, do you, um, are, is there anything about your attendance that you wish you knew more about, or is it just a matter of once you cruise over $3 million, you're a success, so you just want to keep up with that? Uh, you know, does the desire to increase visitation or increase it in certain categories, is that is that a sort of marketing plan that the national parks like yours would endeavor to to do? Or is it is it just, as I say, you know, people know it's there and it's a national attraction so they can come or not. And it's not up to you to guide your visitation. No, actually, we, we, we have conversations about um who visits here and when they visit here. And this park for, you know, its first 50 plus years was perceived as a beach destination. So the visitation was fairly focused in the warm weather time of year from May through August. So we're working hard at letting people know that this is a year round destination. And we're trying to develop the infrastructure in the park to provide experiences that are beyond uh, a terrific beach experience. So we have 50 miles of trails in the park. And one of our high priorities right now is to complete segments of what's called the Marquette Greenway, which will connect New Buffalo, Michigan with uh, basically Chicago. 
And if we had a, a, a continuous trail through the park, we figured that would provide 11 to 12 month opportunities for trail recreation. We have fabulous winter scenery here. The eastern half of the park is in the Lake Michigan snow belt. So cross-country skiing and snowshoeing are very popular in the right winter weather. Uh, the fall foliage here, because of our mix of hardwood trees, rivals uh, a New England, Vermont fall colors. But we just don't have the mountains of Vermont, but we got the colors of Vermont. And so I could talk all day about what you could do here year-round. Uh, and if you're just coming here for beach time, you're just scratching the, the surface of what is possible. Well, it, it's it, and I, I can attest to that because uh, we have a collection of um, uh, maybe others in other parts of the country have seen this or have local destinations that have this. But there's a terrific poster series um, that was put out or at least started, I think, by the railroad company that would bring you uh, to the Indiana Dunes from Chicago. And it was meant mainly to, to, to course people to vacation at the dunes many years ago. But there are some fabulous pictures from, you know, throughout the year of people, you know, sunbathing in, the, you know, the 1950s or what have you, uh, or, uh, or seeing the fall foliage like you're describing or, or cross-country skiing on snow. There, there really is a, I mean, you are in a four-season location, which means the character and the menu of activities is, is, is pretty steadily changing. Now, and so the other thing is, is that in order to uh, maintain the um, support for the park, it's always nice to be able to show how the park adds value to the community and the, the business side of it um, is very important to, you know, the, the, the tourism industry compacted into summer uh, makes it tough for people to to capitalize on the park being here because of, you know, three or four months of cash flow may not make it feasible to invest in a business that is going to be, that needs to be around 12 months of the year. Yeah, if you're a hotel just outside the park, you want to work all year round. You don't want to work just the summer. Right. And, you know, we, we, we have the interstate traffic and that's part of it. But, um it, it would be nice if um, the park were to be a, a larger contributor to that traffic than it might currently be in the shoulder and off season. Well, you, you're actually part of a, of a national change that's taking place, and, and it's not happening all at once. It's like anything that you could arbitrage. It's, uh, it's sort of striking people differently at different times. And that change is that today uh, the configuration of America's household uh, is way different than it was, you know, even in when I was growing up or younger people growing up. Right now, um, across the country, only about 20%, maybe 21% of all households have kids 12 and under. And if you jump uh, 18 and under, you're still at less than a third of all households. That means that most households, in fact, between 65 and 70% of all American households are just one or two person households. That means they're adult households by and large. And and if there are, you know, almost 70% of all households are adult households, they can travel and visit things pretty much any time of the year. They're not stuck to summer vacations or Christmas or spring breaks um, or even weekends for that matter, because a lot of people have jobs that, you know, that they work the weekend so they can do things other days of the year. So it's really been a challenge 
for America's destinations to figure out, wait, we can service adults too. And and adults will often pay a little more, you know, per person than families will. Is is that is that something that, that you have seen much of where a lot of your visitors are adult parties and not families? You know, I don't know if I've I've I haven't looked at that specifically, but my thoughts have always been that um do we make plans and do we do we operate this park for tourists or do we do we manage the park well and manage it mostly for the folks who are close to the region and what we what I think I've seen in the in the tourist industry is that the kind of tourists that you described that have a little bit more disposable income and more flexibilities are much more interested in coming to see authentic places than fabricated places, you know, tourist facilities. And so our job is to make this park and the, and have it be a, a, a piece of the region's quality of life, do what we do for the people who live, work, and play here, and that that becomes a place that other people are going to want to come visit, require less infrastructure hard infrastructure to support their visit and that they actually spend more money per capita per visit. So we're being a little selfish. We're, we're making this a great place for those of us who are here with the understanding and hope that it will become a place that others will want to visit. But those folks don't require a whole lot of uh, infrastructure to make that visit, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's actually a really interesting kind of conundrum too, because you, you were one of 419 national park sites. Um, you made it into the select 60, making it 61. Um, and, uh, uh, it, and you immediately became, you know, when you throw in the, the state park in your boundaries, you immediately became, you know, a top 10 attraction. But if you were to look at the bottom 20 national parks in terms of attendance, they are no less wonderful and spectacular locations and sites it's just that they're not very convenient or don't have the public recognition that a lot of the other parks have. So they really do have to, and a lot of those most national parks seem to be in rural areas as opposed to metro areas, uh, they do have to really cater to their local market and scramble for what they can of, of tourism dollars. And just as you entered uh, Select 60, becoming number 61, the reality is a number of places, not that many, but a number of places over time have actually been been um, have been uh, drummed out of the national park system. Now, and so and that's that's an interesting conundrum for the National Park Service because you know we've been around a little over a hundred years, and and our mission has got a couple parts to it, and one of those parts is to protect unimpaired for future generations, the natural and cultural treasures of the country. And then the second part of it is for for public use and enjoyment. And so a place like Gates of the Arctic National Preserve in the northern part of Alaska is one of the least visited national park sites. But the, the national park system was created to set aside these great places and the, the visitation side of the equation is not necessarily the deal breaker. But in tough times financially, as far as, you know, federal budgets, 
there's always talk about, well, we should just thin down the number of parks because they don't have enough money to manage them all well. So let's just take the ones that don't get any people to them. and Let's just, you know, take them off the list. And that would be a mistake in my mind. Yeah, that would violate one of your two premises. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, 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 have, we have both sides of the equation taken care of. We have really nationally and globally significant resources, but we also get plenty of people to visit here. And so I don't worry about somebody saying, well, let's get rid of Indiana Dunes National Park because, you know, times are tough. Um, and when we start talking about our economic impact in the region, I would argue that the return on investment of what the public spends here to keep this place going is paid multiple times over much better return than many, many public investments. Yeah, I, I, I would I would agree with you because the alternative would be would have been um, the industrial development of many of those 15 miles and would have also in some cases been just, uh, you know, the building of second homes along the lake shore which is good for those that own the homes or rent the homes, but not for many others. Uh, at least not. Uh, at least that doesn't generate anywhere near the volume of, of business that a national park would, would generate. No, and you, you don't have to look very far to see, you know, Ohio has a, a larger coast on Lake Erie, but, uh, you know, I, I think 85% of it is private. And so um, with rising lake levels and climate change, storm intensities, there's a, a lot of um, a lot of the development that has occurred incrementally over the century or so is now being impacted by these changes, and people are looking for public money to basically uh, protect these private properties. And here, what we found is that the natural lake lake shore is the most resilient lake shore to climate change, and so. It's, it's a hard number to say how much how much public money have we saved not having to protect developed areas from the the ravages of high lake levels and crazy storms of late. Yeah, actually, you've, you've, you've hit on a really interesting subject there, too, because, you know, you're right. There is kind of a, a, of, a of an amount of money saved by the fact that, you know, nature will do what it will to those 15 miles. And frankly, that's that's OK. Um, uh, on, on, on the end of that would have cost us money uh, or would have cost somebody money um, with the rising lake levels. Talk about some of those things that, that are hitting the Great Lakes right now. Um, I was reading about uh, essentially the red tide now. Um, uh, and I love the headline. It said, can now be seen from space on Lake Erie. Uh, I, I say that that's kind of humorous because, uh, because we can be seen from space now. Uh, you know, uh, if you've been on Google Earth, anything can. But uh, but just that notion that we have this large dead zone outside of Cleveland, we have uh, a red tide. Now that's a much shallower lake than Michigan. But Michigan, you've you've had some parts of the of the lake shore. Here I go. I'm sorry, the national park. Uh, you've had some parts of the national park that have taken a beating um, in recent years too. I think in the Portage area. Yeah, in fact, I was at the Portage Lakefront this morning looking at. Um the coastal erosion that's happening there and looking at the impact on a, a beach there and potentially on a park building that in hindsight was probably built too close to the lake. And so what we're, what we're talking about here to the communities that have houses that are right on Lake Michigan is um, one 
probably a mistake to build them that close to the lake. And two, the um, proposals to use highly engineered hard structures to protect those homes are probably not going to work in the long run and then act as a way just to transfer those erosive forces of waves, wind, and water to wherever that revetment stops. And it's a never-ending sequence of, oh, we need to armor the beach, we need to armor the beach, and pretty soon the entire beach has got seawalls or, or giant boulders, and there is no more beach. And so I think some of the coastal states, Oregon, North Carolina, have realized that continuing to rebuild in, uh, in the coastal zone on barrier islands or in high flood-prone areas of coastal zones is not sustainable and that it may take us 100 years to back away from our coastlines, our lakefronts, and even our river edges, but the lake, the river, the ocean will always win. And at some point, we should recognize that and, and act accordingly. So Lake Michigan is almost at its historic high level. And the storm intensities of the last five years are, are just have never been experienced before. So you couple that with high lake levels and anything close to the edge of the lake is in trouble. And how do you deal with that? And you, you can't build more things on the lakefront to, uh, to stop that. You, you, you know, I, I, I have a discussion sometimes with uh, people that live on the Atlantic or the Gulf Coast. And uh, I don't think it's as recognized as you just nicely uh, stated and described. I don't think it's recognized that, you know, whether we're talking about algae blooms in Lake Erie or the, the rough storms that come from uh, Lake Michigan these days, uh, I don't think a lot of coastal people realize that in the Great Lakes it's happening too. Um, and we're, we're, we're seeing flooding of different kinds, uh, you know, the historic flooding of the western part of the Midwest uh, this springtime. Um, you know, that, that sort of, those sort of storms. Now, what's interesting about Lake Michigan, as you all know, is, is that the actual watershed for Lake Michigan doesn't actually go that far west. Uh, it's only a few miles for the most part. So uh, the most of that storm, uh, most of those uh, horrendous storms and floods uh, occurred in the Mississippi uh, watershed, which is a different watershed than we have here. Now, it's, it's, it is surprising how small the basin is for the Great Lakes, but um, it doesn't minimize. I mean, we've had some amazing coastal events here. Uh, the upside, if you will, as trying to be an optimist, is something I never thought I'd hear people talk about. But, you know, it, it might make a great T-shirt is Surf Indiana. The, the wave heights at certain times of the year here are high enough that people have now started to surf here in, in Indiana on Lake Michigan. Well, of course, it's freshwater, too, which which is a double-edged sword, freshwater. Um, you know, I suppose some would say you don't get the salt sea air, which you would on the East Coast or the West. But the other side of uh, freshwater means we got to be careful because pretty much all the population of the states on the Great Lakes drink water from the Great Lakes. Um, that's not an issue that you face in, let's say, in Boston, New York, or, or in Philadelphia. You're not drinking water from the ocean. 
you know, that which is our body of water that we play in frolic and fun in is also what we drink. No, so, you know, uh, recently, too, over the last couple of years, we've had a couple serious industrial spills and discharges of things like hexavalent chromium, ammonia, and cyanide. And um, these these discharges and spills are occurring literally a couple hundred feet into rivers and and ditches that empty into Lake Michigan. And so if you really want a a monster movie horror story, go to any state's Department of Health and look at the fish consumption advisories for Great Lakes fish. Yeah, good point. It's not not a pretty story. We're not supposed to to eat what we catch. Um, I'm not sure if that's a true PR for the fish or not, though. But uh, but gen- but genuinely, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a tale of caution. And there was a time when um, actually fishing was a significant industry in many Great Lakes cities uh, that they would catch all the freshwater fish. Um, you know, even uh, you know, there's even a bit of a cliche in, in that you know, in northern Indiana in the Chicago area, we used to eat something called Lake Perch. Um, I know it's still served on some menus, but I'm not sure that that's what it really is. Well, my guess is the the, yeah, the perch in restaurants does not come from local waters. And uh, it, interesting story, the yellow perch, which are one of the native fish in the Great Lakes, are making a little bit of a comeback right now, which is which is exciting to hear because the, the Great Lakes fisheries have been really um, don't resemble anything what was there naturally uh, prior to settlement and the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway. Uh, the Great Lakes fishery is a, is a bit of a disaster from that perspective. A lot of invasive species like uh, lamprey and zebra mussels. Yeah, I think one of the unintended consequences of connecting the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean and the rest of the world was um, everything that we were sending out uh, ran the same risk of being bought in. So we got we got mussels, we got fish, we got plants from the, um, the Mediterranean and some of the inland seas in Europe and Asia. And the sea lamprey being one of the beasts that came over in ballast water from a large vessel were led into an environment where they could prosper and reproduce with no natural controls. No predators. So it's the classic uh, non-native invasive species story. And so you, whether it's sea lampreys, uh, gobies, spiny water fleas, uh, a fish disease called viral, uh, hemorrhagic septicemia, uh, quagga mussels, zebra mussels. I mean, again, how much time do you have? Well, and, and actually, uh, we're, uh, uh, there is an electric fence in a canal that goes through Chicago, an electric fence literally uh, electric charges are sent through the water in this canal to prevent Asian carp, from uh, which are remarkable jumping fish. Uh, though I don't know that they can be trained to do so. Uh, to, uh, you know, there are these Asian carp that are just dying it into Lake Michigan. And while they haven't clarified what it means, they say they have found Asian carp uh, DNA in Lake Michigan. So uh, pretty much every other state is, is lined up against Illinois on that one because they don't want those in the lakes too. No, and so here we are looking, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the, the conduit of these things from the Atlantic Ocean and what's happening with Asian carp is that they're coming up the Mississippi River from the other direction. And there are several places where those basins mix in the right conditions. And one of them is that canal in Chicago. 
And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there are actually four different species of Asian carp. The ones that you're referring to as jumpers are the silver carp. And there's another species called the bighead carp. And both silver and bighead carp are planktivores. They, they eat plankton. And they eat about one-third of their body weight of plankton a day. And these fish grow, these fish grow to be between 40 and 120 pounds. So imagine that much plankton being filtered out of the system. And plankton is the basis of the entire food chain. And so there are two other species of Asian carp are the grass carp. And a lot of people are familiar with grass carp because they've been used as aquatic plant control in ponds for decades. And there's another one called the black carp, which eats mussels, freshwater mussels. And so these four species of fish, and they're all big fish, eat everything that our native fish rely on. And a place like the Illinois River is reported that 90% of the biomass in that river is in Asian carp flesh, which means there's really little of anything else there. It's a horror story. After the fridge is empty, I wonder if uh, if there's going to be some sort of a die-off. So, you know, my, my theory was this, is that all the, the estuaries of tributaries to Lake Michigan, which are fairly um, full of nutrients from, you know, septic and ag runoff, that the fish would thrive there, but in the in the larger open lake where the water is a little colder and less um, less nutrients, it would keep these fish from expanding. But then I just saw literally a month or two ago a study that said uh, the silver the silver carp have uh, will actually consume the feces from zebra mussels as a replacement of plankton. And so that that my assumption that the the big cold lake would stop them is probably not true. You, you know, I think there have been a lot of presumptions that have collapsed in the face of of invasive species. You know, a lot of hope and in uh, in the end, not not a lot of glory. You you mentioned the uh, and I'm going to try this here hexavalent chlorium or chromium. Um, yeah, and 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 the reality is that that you are adjacent to the second largest steelmaking district in the United States. In fact, North America, um, Northwest Indiana, as a part of the south, I guess, eastern part of Metro Chicago, is is where a phenomenal amount of steel is made. And, and there are also a lot of refineries too. That is to say, oil refineries, because there are a lot of pipelines that pass through um, that pass through Illinois and Indiana. Uh, going east, west, and north, south to Canada and to uh, points, uh, points out of what in the Dakotas and such. Um, it, it, you know, there, you are you are a national park sitting on top of or amid a really industrial area. Uh, you you spoke of that earlier in, in in a poetic way, saying that it's kind of cool to find this you know oasis in the midst of of all of this man made um, activity. The catch in two ways is that is that not only does 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 it, does it look incongruous, although that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I wonder if the climate issues that you mentioned that the lake uh, that the national park can bear, I wonder how industry is going to react uh, to uh, to greater storm issues and uh, and to uh, higher lake levels and such. Yeah, it's a good question. I think. Our worry has been, especially in the light of the last couple of years, these different uh, permanent exceedances and spills, 
is that the, the aging infrastructure of these mills as they reach their half century mark or older, um, you know, you assume that everybody's keeping up with what needs to be fixed. But we're in a climate now of, you know, deregulation. And um, you would like to think that we could trust everybody's going to do the right thing. But sometimes that doesn't happen or sometimes accidents happen. And so are, are, do we even know what's going on? Because the way things are legally required to be reported does not favor us as a national park nor the public at large. And so we have some people asking those, you know, our partners are asking those questions. Well, you're, you're in a really interesting position, uh, you know, running a national park where uh, you have to have uh, the uh, state EPA and the national EPA and a number of, of physically adjacent industries on speed dial on your phone. I'm going to guess that the guys running or the gals running Yosemite or, or Grand Canyon or uh, Yellowstone, they don't have that kind of worry. So, yeah, they have different worries, I'm sure. You know, that's that's the, the, the beauty and the, the terror of these jobs is everywhere you go, you have a, a long list of relevant local um, challenges. And here they happen to have the name of steel companies and refineries on them. Uh, it, it's it's uh, qualitatively, I don't know if it's better or worse. It's different. But it does require us to to work with our industrial neighbors. And I will say for the most part, they're pretty good neighbors. But um, every once in a while, something happens and you, you wish you kind of knew about it sooner so that you could uh, keep the public safe. And that's really the priority is making sure our visitors are safe when they come here. It, you know, it, it, it is in some cases, I'm going to uh, guess, you know, irreversible that there are going to be some changes that will take a long time. But luckily, nature can, I suppose, heal a lot of most situations. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the pre-regulatory activities of industry still show up in sediments. And I would like to think that since the Clean Water Act was passed and other other laws from the 60s, when things were really bad, that um, nature is healing a little bit. But... Um, with again, with some deregulation, um, I'm I'm a little worried. That's a really good point because I I think in these times um, the balance of power in Washington and in state government, excuse me, in, in some state governments like your own in Indiana, seem to have shifted back toward economic development as the principal objective, and that's not a bad thing in and of itself. It just means that things that we may be taking for granted, like you mentioned, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and others, um, which are being, um, I guess, renegotiated in some cases, uh, that, uh, that's something that is going to have consequences that we may not recognize today, but will hit us tomorrow. Now, that, and that's why we spend a lot of time trying to articulate our value from an economic perspective, because we, we do have a good return and there's really nothing that needs to be fixed because of what we do. And I really do think that the, the long-term environmental analysis of some industry, when the, when the quote-unquote cleanup costs are factored into the equation, is going to show that the, the older view of what economic development was, was not 100% v- 
true because of the total impacts were not costed out. That's a really good point. And and I remember working um, on tourism development strategy in Michigan 20 years ago when uh, a, a public uh, organization called the Michigan Jobs Commission, which endeavored to do what it sounds like, the Michigan Jobs Commission had to finally be turned like a like a giant tanker at sea, had to be turned over many miles to recognize that tourism industry actually did produce lots of jobs. And because the tourism industry is unusually fragmented for an American industry, which is to say it's lots and lots of small businesses as opposed to a small number of large businesses, um, you know, that, that, that was something that was a victory when the Michigan Jobs Commission began to help finance or fund or develop tourism in the state of Michigan. And today, living in the Chicago media market, I cannot get away from Michigan is, is, is the place to go. Uh, the Pure Michigan uh, uh, ads uh, with the guy from, oh, I can't think of, there's, a, there's an actor who, uh, who was from a sitcom back 20 years ago, he's from Michigan. Uh, his, uh, his, his voice is in my head about come to Pure Michigan. Of course, you would say, if you're coming from Chicago, stop in Indiana first. Yeah, that's, that's what I think is happening is that as more people figure out that, you know, the Chicago tradition is you drive through Indiana to get to your place in Michigan. And if you had a place in Indiana, you'd, you'd have an hour on each end of your trip more to have fun on the lake than just in your car. That's true. Um, it, it, you know, it, when, you, when we talk about this in tourism development, uh, along the Indiana coastline there, you know, backing up your 15 miles. Um, do you foresee further development there? Do you see people thinking about lodging more interpretive studies, you know, backcountry tours of the national park, things like that? Is, is, is in fact, there kind of a plan developing amongst those three counties? Yeah, in fact, it's interesting. The uh, Both in the city of Gary and the city of Michigan City, there are some adaptive properties that are, are changing use and that the the development communities are looking at ways to to develop an old armory in Gary and the um, Nipsco power plant Michigan City and how do they redevelop them so that they can take advantage of um, a national park to the east and west of them but also uh, add some needed economic activity for those two communities. And it's kind of fun being in the park in the center of it uh, and being talked to early in that process so we can help guide the developers to do things that we could support as opposed to things that we need to fight. So that's that's a good that's a good sign that um, the, the next iteration of development near the lakefront is is all emphasizing maintaining a natural, you know, coastline, and then developing amenities that will provide uh, places for people to stay, shop, and eat uh, that add value to the park itself. 